turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 5, and as we do, the children may be dismissed to Tabernacle Express, a children's ministry program. And uh, there is a pew Bible in front of you, a red Bible, that if uh, you need it, feel free. There's uh, page number 914 is the uh, location of where we'll start reading, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to start um, in verse 20. Um, our main text is verse 33 to 37, but what Jesus is doing, he's providing five different illustrations of the truth he just stated in verse 20. Just to bring this back to our point of focus, verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now the Quakers have often been uh, the ones that people identify with a strict reading of the Sermon on the Mount and a refusal to take oaths of office, and they tend to have a pacifist point of view to uh, life. Um, it's actually kind of ironic that the only two Quaker presidents in our history chose to say, I solemnly swear, instead of the alternative, which is theirs to do, I affirm. Uh, it's kind of ironic that neither Richard Nixon nor Herbert Hoover affirmed. It's a remarkable departure, actually, from the uh, tenets of the Quaker faith. And uh, it is coming from a strict reading of what Jesus uh, stated here in verse 33 to 37. And uh, the only president in our history who has affirmed rather than uh, swore, solemnly swore was uh, Franklin Pierce of New Hampshire, 1853. In case you're ever on jeopardy, I want to see you say that. And, uh, but he uh, was an Episcopalian, and instead of placing his hand upon the Bible, he put it on a book of law theory, and uh, he said, I, I affirm. And uh, very unique and interesting. But uh, again, so far what we've been doing in this uh, process of breaking down the Sermon on the Mount is to isolate each of these illustrations, but then connect it to the main emphases that Jesus is making in verse 20. Um, and what he's encouraging listeners to do is to be honest with themselves before the demands of the law. You cannot just be like the Pharisee or the Sadducee or the scribe. 
and rewrite laws down to a level that you can attain to, you need to be honest about what the law is calling you to do. Recognize you cannot, on your own, fulfill the law. And Jesus is moving in his sermon to cause us to recognize that we need to look to him who has fulfilled all righteousness in the law. And so this is an illustration to help us to think critically about the law, uh, but also to recognize that we have a final solution for sin, and it's in the cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, we live with sin. We will always be contaminated with sin. But one day, through the resurrection of our earthly bodies, we will be freed from sin because of the first resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is our hope. And so we need to look at each of these illustrations, be honest before God, and by being honest with ourselves, it'll actually put us in a place so that we might flourish on this world, in this world, we'll flourish, we'll be in a better place emotionally, and our hearts will be in a much better place so that we can go about life as we await his return. So... Jesus is not replacing the law. Some people have thought that that's what he did, was doing when he said, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And so people like the Quakers have sat, said to themselves, well, okay, so the Old Testament is now being displaced, and this is the new ethic that we live by in, in every way, and they don't harmonize statements from the Old Testament with what Jesus is saying here, and I believe misunderstand the point of emphasis. Uh, Jesus is putting the law back on its proper footing. He's, he's, the scribes and the Pharisees haven't done the law well. And now he is showing us what it means to live honestly before the law and follow it from the heart. So what we've done, we've looked at each of these, kind of the bare bones of what the commandment was saying, and then we kind of see how Jesus puts flesh and tissue on it. And so that's the process that we're going to go through this morning. I'm going to leave to the end more of that, that big idea. Uh, for those who like to know where I'm going, I'm sorry. You're going to have to wait till the end to see how this is going to turn out. But the first verse, verse 33, Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, I've said here in my main point that the bare bones of the commandment is thou shalt not lie. Verse 33. And you note, you might note that as I'm referring to the Ten Commandments, that this is not actually what the, ten, the Ninth Commandment actually says. Um, so don't write me off as a heretic yet, Okay. The ninth commandment is, thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. So where do I get, thou shalt not lie from, and why does it matter with what Jesus is saying about oath-taking? Well, as you read through the Pentateuch, you'll come to Leviticus 19, verse 11 and 12, which is kind of an exposition of the Ten Commandments. And we see in verse 19, uh, Moses writing, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord. I, 
of, of your God, I am the Lord. And there's some similarities to what Jesus says in his sermon, but it's not an exact parallel. Exactly. Um, so the specific quote is actually a merger of several statements about truth-telling and avoiding deceit within the heart. And another example, I just need you to see kind of what Jesus is doing here. Numbers 30, verse 2, says this, that if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by the pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, this is not an exact quote either from what Jesus said in his sermon. Let's look at Exodus 20, verse 7. They're very close. But in Exodus 20, verse 7, you see this where it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the Lord's name in vain. What is Jesus doing? He's, he's claiming that you have heard that it was said, and, and up to this point we've heard exact quotations from the Old Testament. Now you're not seeing an exact quotation. What you're seeing is a blending together of various ideas in the Old Testament, based upon the Ten Commandments. And what Jesus is doing here, he's taking a step into the world of the Pharisee and the scribe. This was their territory, to interpret the law and synthesize different laws and different expressions of the Old Testament. Jesus is walking on their turf now, demonstrating that he was a rabbi of the rabbis, the teacher of the teachers. And when the Ten Commandments were given, they were not expressly, they did not expressly address every sin that man could potentially commit. So you might think of the Ten Commandments, and what Jesus is doing is a lot like how we might look at primary colors. Ten Commandments are a lot like primary colors of, what are they? Red, blue, and yellow are primary colors. But when you overlay them, you get different kinds of colors. And in a similar way, if you take the Ten Commandments and you overlay them a little bit, you're going to see different expressions of sin and prohibition. Yet, these are set as principles, and the scribes and the Pharisees on the one hand, we're trying to be faithful to their job of interpreting what Moses had left them. That's what the Levites were supposed to do. There were Levites set in all the cities of Israel, teaching the commandments of God and also interpreting and showing people how to live by God's law. So that Pharisees, Sadducees were doing what they were supposed to do, but historically something happened. At a point before Christ's coming, Israel was occupied by the Greeks and by the Romans. And gradually, the way in which law was conducted in Israel began to shift and to look more like the nations rather than how God had originally put it and intended. See, Judaism in Jesus' day had picked up a secular approach to the, that the occupying powers and what did this look like? And this is where it gets to be very practical and very close to home. 
the scribes and the Pharisees would codify their interpretations as new policy. And by, by creating a policy on tithing, retaliation, swearing, adultery, all manner of things, what they did was they removed the law from the people and operated on policy rather than what God had originally set up. It's easier to make decisions on policy than it is to do the hard work of listening to someone and their situation and evaluating what they've done against what God's law has said. It's way easier to codify every human experience and have a law book that's as full as full can be that can, you can just turn in the index and say, oh, what, what do I do about this? You don't have to think about it. But the problem with that approach is it creates a reliance upon man-made law, what we would call legalism for one's relationship with God, rather than coming to him for mercy, knowing that you are not right before him. They had created a web work. And so instead of being honest with the law, you know what they did? <laughs> they weren't shepherding people. They were turning to the law and said, well, what does the law say? The, the, and they weren't referring to Moses' law, they were referring to their traditions. They had created a web work that was onerous, it was heavy, it was more than people could bear. But they didn't follow their own laws that they had constructed. They're a lot like the elites of our day, who create a law and then you see them partying in the background, not doing what they've asked all of us to do. That's exactly what was going on. They had created workarounds, and they had tried to justify why they weren't obligated to follow the laws that they had prescribed on other people. They had a bad heart motive, creating loopholes for their elite culture that the uneducated couldn't work their way through. So why does this matter? This matters, and this is where the application comes into play is that shepherds of people, whether public or religious, must be men and women of integrity so that their words and deeds correspond with the truthfulness of God's laws. See, today we have blind shepherds denying reality and encouraging wickedness and sin in our society. You think about gender fluidity and non-binary elements, people denying reality and yet forcing this world on all of us. To think about ethical consequences of one's choices is not necessarily legalism, with a heart motive to love God and to love him, it's okay to turn to his law to learn more about him. That's not legalism. You want to glorify him and make much of him and you want to be faithful to the word. That's not legalism. It can be love. But these people had created a system that they couldn't even live out themselves. And instead of changing the system, they doubled down and made exceptions for themselves. So I, want to, I needed to do that setup so that you could understand what Jesus was getting to here as he puts the flesh and the tissue back on the commandment 
And that is to speak truth in your heart and in your mind and in your mouth. Verse 34 to 37. And Jesus here is referencing several blended laws together which were intended to guide a person to think honestly about their souls, the world around them, and to speak with integrity. And we see what Jesus is getting at. We, if we're going to look at it clearly and see it, we kind of define several overlapping words because I think if I'm not careful, we could confuse terms and misunderstand even what Jesus is getting to in the whole thing because he, he talks about uh, performing an oath, you know, swearing an oath. Well, what is an oath? Is that different than a vow? And what about what we would say in our, you know, our way of speaking, swearing? Like, what, 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 how do these factor into what Jesus is talking about? Well, first, an oath is an appeal to God to undergird a statement or a promise. For example, to take an oath of office, uh, the, a person entering that will often swear to solemnly exercise the authority that's been given to them, and they swear on the basis of a higher, higher authority to keep them accountable. So it's an appeal to a higher power or a higher authority. A vow, on the other hand, is a solemn promise made to God about an action that you're going to perform in his honor. And so it's the perspective of where you're, where you're making this promise. Are you making a promise and you're asking someone from outside, like an oath, to hold you accountable? Or are you meeting God one-to-one -one and you're making a promise directly to him about what you are going to fulfill? And so that's the difference between an oath and a vow. Now there may be overlap, but it's often the object of who you're communicating to and calling into uh, someone into as a witness from a higher authority. Now, swearing is a way of communication where you scatter curses or God's name in your communication to dress up your words and to make them appear weightier. Swearing is not an oath per se, but it's spoken with the sound of an oath. For example, to use God's name outside of the context of worship is a kind of lightly use of his name, but you're trying to create the appearance of weight by referencing his name. And I know that that may sound nuanced, and it's just important to understand definitions and how words are used. Now, regarding curses and coarse language, a person is adding, trying to add weight when no weight really should be necessary. It's often mistaken. It's a mistaken understanding of theology to interpret Jesus to mean that never are you supposed to give an oath because in the scriptures themselves, they're commanded to take oaths and to swear by his name. So you see in Deuteronomy 6.13, for example, uh, these words, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Again, Deuteronomy 10, verse 20. 
You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. It's like swear an oath. So there's tension, isn't there? The Old Testament law provided the just use of God's name in swearing an oath, and here you have Jesus giving the appearance of saying, don't make any oaths, don't swear at all. So this has led some like the Quakers to say, well, Jesus is introducing a new law. The old is gone, and we don't need that anymore, and now we live by this law. What is Jesus saying? Well, it's important for us to understand his meaning, and Jesus is intentionally using the tension to draw people to ask, well, what is, what is swearing an oath really about? Well, and this is where he rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes in verse 34 to 36, and he tells them, look, you've created workarounds, but a workaround is not a workaround. If you swear by anything, there is the expectation that you will keep your word. And so let's look at verse 34 to 36 and just refresh the argument that he, he makes with them. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven where it is the throne of God, or by the earth, where it is his footstool, or, it is by Jer or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not make, take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And what we live with in our world, we might call very frequently, like there's a lot of what we would call social swearing. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus is dealing with. There was this social oath-taking in which people would make bold and statements of affirmation that they would follow through with what they had committed themselves to, yet all the while recognizing that they won't. Now, I used to live in the South for a while, and I, would I, I began to recognize that often people would say things like, sure, I'm going to come over and do this and this and this. And they gave this oppression that they were very friendly. Now, no offense to the Southerners, but they had no intention of doing what they said. It took me a while to realize that they were just being polite. Polite. And me being a literalist, thinking they really were going to show up for coffee. They were just, they were just talking generalized. Well, in, in this case, the, the Jews would make an oath to stand up as a witness for themselves of what they were going to do, all the while knowing they weren't going to do what they said they were going to do. So long as they didn't swear by Jehovah or the precious name of God, they were exempt from following through with what they claimed that they would do. But what Jesus is doing here is helping them to realize, look, when you do this, you may think that you're putting in a substitution for the name of God and swearing by his name, but what you're doing, you've, you've, you've taken things too far and you've in truth, you have no capacity to even exist without God declaring your existence to be, to make your hair black or to make it uh, white. And what he's saying is that if you, don't, if you don't swear by the name of God, what you're doing is you're dishonoring God himself, the very 
name of God is the expression of who he is. Some time ago, we preached, I preached through the book of Hebrews, and the very opening lines of Hebrews tells us that the radiance of God is, is the very Son of God himself. The declaration of God's name is the very Son of God himself. Think about this. Jesus is standing there and telling them, so you don't want to utter the name? I am the name. I'm standing here right in front of you. And you want, don't want to dishonor, but you're dishonoring. You're, dis, you're disrupting and distorting what, real tr what reality is. I am reality. But Jesus is saying here very carefully to them, keep your commitments. Be a person of integrity. And if you have to invoke the name of Jesus, of the name of God, tis your witness, you better be careful. Beware. Beware of what you're doing. Don't take an oath at all if you're going to cheapen it with a substitute for God's glorious name. God's throne is in heaven. The earth is his footstool. In other words, it would be better for you not to swear at all even if you use a substitute for God's name. If you've got no intent to honor the commitment that you're swearing that you will fulfill by God's name, don't even do it. Beware. Beware of what you're doing. Now, I might be reading a little bit between the lines here, but I don't think I'm far off. Because in verse 37, Jesus says this, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more from this comes from evil. That word evil can fairly mean the evil one. Sometimes we talk about a good one or a good person, and we reference the, the person by the adjective. And that's what this word, this adjective can do. It can stand in the place of a person and not just merely refer to the evil of the evil one, but refer to the evil one. And if I see it this way, and I believe that it's well argued this way, Jesus saying, let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more from this comes from the evil one. The evil one, we might realize is who? Satan. Now Jesus had said just, just a couple pages over in the Beatitudes in, in Matthew 5, 8 he said this, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. This is why I believe it's important for us to realize that God values integrity, he values the words that we use, he values truth because without a purity of heart, we will not see God. We will be unable to enter into heaven. Just as he said, unless your righteousness exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm deliberately not solving this tension right now. Why was Jesus so hard on the scribe and the Pharisee. 
It's because they thought that they were going to see God. They thought that they had created all of this system, that they were going to see God, but they were not having a pure heart. They weren't honest about what they were doing. They weren't honest that the law required them to live honestly before their fellow man and before God. They had a divided interest. They were double-minded. In reality, they were serving Satan. They weren't serving God at all. They had created a system that they could manage rather than humble themselves before the law saying, I need mercy. I need grace. And a greater response to God's law than the Pharisee would be a response of honesty. Otherwise, as soon as it becomes necessary to say, you know, more than yes or no, you're trying to persuade other people and you're demonstrating that you have a bad heart motive. Jesus is saying that the integrity of the heart is a precursor for true communication, honest communication. So does this mean that there is never a time for a legal oath? No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, as you go about life, make sure that you don't live or talk in a way that is contrary to the truth. That's what the law asks you to do. That's the ideal way to go about life, to live honestly without the need for oaths as a way of doing communication. That's why it's really important to recognize that as Christians, historically Christians have discouraged throw away, throw away words in communication, like social swearing. Because you don't need to add curses and, and oaths and things that sound weighty. You simply need to let your communication be yes or no. And this is the basis on which Christians have considered the importance of how we communicate with our words. And so, verse 37, I see Jesus encouraging us as believers to train our thoughts towards the truth. Train our thoughts towards the truth. Now, I've got some applicational thoughts here, here at the end, that I think may be helpful for us as we consider what Jesus is saying. And they may sound familiar, and they may say, sound a little bit contemporary. But there's nothing new under the sun. We need to prepare ourselves to recognize truth by speaking truth inside of our hearts first. First applicational point here I'd like to make is that we need to be prepared for information war. We're living in an age in which information is used to destroy. And what it's very difficult to know what we're hearing, whether it's true or not. And we need to have a healthy level of skepticism within our hearts and minds so that we can be looking for the truth. We want the truth. We cannot assume that everything that we're hearing is as honest as the gospel itself. We have to be careful. We live in a world of experience. We like impressions. We like story. We like sensations. One of the most dangerous things that we can do in this world is to trust ourselves, to be able to arbitrate and navigate the world on our own. 
You might think this is an odd way to move towards application. But it is absolutely essential for flourishing in this world to be able to have capacity to assess what's coming at you. Because you may be tempted to believe something that is not true, and that will affect your insides and how you relate to those around you. We also have to recognize that we have a fallen nature. We need to train our thoughts towards the truth. It doesn't come naturally. We, we like the big lie. We like stories. We've got to work really hard that internally, like particularly if you have a disposition, I have a disposition towards, if I'm not careful, melancholy or despair in a darker disposition, if that's your kind of like frame of reference, it's very easy to believe the negative. It's very easy to take that which appears dark and heavy as gospel truth. Psalm 19 verse 14 says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's not just truths, but what, how I'm thinking about these things, it matters to God. And we ought to take that seriously and recognize that we have a fallen nature that can be deceived. Um, third, we need to recognize that we live in a fallen world. We can't accept everything that we hear. We've got to learn how to be a questioner. And if people are sinners and I'm a sinner, it's very possible that people are seeking to deceive me. And it's important for us to have a healthy degree of that recognition. Four, we have to be careful with our words. Definitions matter. I know that words change through the centuries. I get that. But we have to be careful of the wholesale dishonesty that's in our culture and not be pulled into it. What I'm talking about, basic truth, like he and she. We have to be careful that we do not parrot back what people want to hear. We have to affirm and stand for the truth and not become deceived. Definitions matter. Racism is being redefined to include any relationship which may appear imbalanced. That's not racism. That's Marxism. And we have to know the difference and realize it. Defini definitions matter. Did you lie? No, I, I told a half-truth. Was it deceitful? Yes, it was. We have to be honest. And the danger of believing a false definition is the potential to create a false world around yourself. And that's dangerous. You will fall into a ditch and you will get hurt. And so it's so important that you honor truthful definitions. Fifth, beware of artificial intelligence. Now that may sound crazy, but the danger of social media is its ability to anticipate what you like. I have Bluetooth earbuds and 
I listen to a lot of podcasts. So my phone, actually, if I pick it up, it will automatically on the preview screen give me choices of different podcasts I could listen to. How did it know that? <laughs> Artificial intelligence, anticipating what you might be interested in. I would not be a good shepherd if I did not warn you that if you click on things, gradually, that machine will know you. They'll know what's in your heart, and it will give you what your heart wants. Don't be dishonest. Live truthful in the world. Be honest with yourself. Confess sin. And so we come to more of a conclusion now, and I think it's important for us now to recognize what Jesus is saying. He's simply saying that a sincere faith before God ought to live towards an honest life. It's not a perfect life. It's an honest life. Honest that I am a sinner before God's law. And when I sense the Holy Spirit showing me my sin, I don't suppress the Spirit, I don't be, I be honest with the Spirit, and I confess my sin, and I find forgiveness for my sin at the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what we need. That's what Jesus came into the world for. He came to save sinners. Paul was a Pharisee who finally was broken and recognized that he didn't have enough righteousness to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He needed the righteousness that Christ could give him. We all need that righteousness. We need to live honestly and have a sincerity of heart before the law. There was once a pastor who preached on honesty one Sunday. This is not me. But on Monday morning, he took a bus to get to the office. Clearly, it's not me because we don't have a bus system here. He paid the fare, and the bus driver gave him back too much change. During the rest of the journey, the pastor was rationalizing in his mind, what is he supposed to do with this change? Maybe this is God's way of giving me something extra for the week? Well, finally, he just couldn't live with himself, and before he got off the bus, he told the driver, you made a mistake. You've given me too much change. He proceeded to give him back the extra money. The driver smiled and said, there was no mistake. I was at your church yesterday, and I heard you preach on honesty. So I decided to put you to the test this morning. <laughs> Speaking truth in one's heart will mean not self-justifying, not rationalizing. And it will translate into an honest heart. And Jesus is a encouraging us to be honest about our tendency to lie to ourselves and to reinterpret the world around ourselves and to imagine things that are not real. First, you've got to be honest about your sin, confess your sin to the Lord, and then purpose to renew your mind day by day by confessing of sin and finding the healing that forgiveness at the cross gives to each and every one of us.